Well, here we are. Is the end of the road, the end of our journey through the book of Revelation, a journey that we began over 13 months ago, the first Sunday in November. And week by week, passage by passage, for 43 sermons, we have sought to unfold the mysteries of this wondrous book. For many of us, the book of Revelation was like an unexplored world. It was a new and frightening land of fog and mist, of beasts and of dragons. And on that first Sunday of November last year, we were like explorers landing on the beach of a wild and untamed wilderness. But we planted our flag in chapter 1 determined to explore and to map out the mysterious terrain before us. And now, 13 months later, we have reached the other side of the book and we can look back over the terrain that we have covered. And I hope and I pray that looking back, it no longer seems to you so mysterious. Rather, I hope that we have detected a pattern We have detected a design to the contents of this strange book. And by way of introduction to this final message, I would like to look back over the map that we've made along our journey and survey once again the big picture of the book of Revelation. The book begins with an introductory vision of the risen and the exalted Son of Man who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, which are the seven churches. And the Son of Man gives to the Apostle John, who is in exile on the Isle of Patmos, near the very end of his life, about a 90-year-old man. And he gives him seven letters for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And those seven letters are found in the first three chapters. Seven messages of encouragement and exhortation of commendation and conviction, of salvation and of judgment. Then the main body of Revelation begins. And chapter 4 and verse 1 all the way to chapter 22 and verse 5 contains a series of apocalyptic visions in which John sees graphic images depicted before him portraying the tribulation of this age and glimpses of the glory of the age to come. That main body of Revelation can be divided into three parts. First, in chapters 4 and 5, there is a vision of the heavenly throne room that reveals Him who sits upon the throne, having the scroll of destiny in His right hand, reigning in absolute sovereignty over all of history and over all of creation. The angels surround Him in worship and the Lamb who was slain to purchase for God with His blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. He stands in the midst of the throne having the authority to break the seven seals and to unfold the destiny of the world. Then, as the seals are broken and the scroll of destiny is unfurled, seven vision cycles appear before John's eyes. Chapters 6 through the end of chapter 20. Seven parallel narratives detailing the tribulation of this age, each culminating in the return of Christ, the day of wrath, and the final judgment at the, at, at the end of the age. So seven vision cycles that are parallel in their scope and in their subjects. First, we saw the vision of the seven seals in chapters seven, or 6 and 7. Followed by the vision of the seven trumpets in chapters 8 through 11. Then came the vision of the seven symbolic histories in 12 and 13 and 14, followed by the seven bowls of wrath in 15 and 16. Next came the seven messages of judgment upon Babylon in 17 and 18, and the first half of chapter 19. Then the sixth vision cycle, we saw the return of Christ upon the white horse and the judgment that He brings on the last day in the latter half of chapter 19. 
And then the seventh and final vision cycle was the thousand-year reign of Christ with His saints, the final defeat of Satan at the battle of Armageddon, and the great white throne judgment in chapter 20. Finally then, John sees a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, which represents the glorified church in the new creation, and the consummation of our redemption in the age to come. Chapters 21.1 through 22.5. The book then concludes with a postscript addressed directly to the churches, to us, from 22.6 on to the end, 22.21. Though Revelation remains a book unlike any other in the canon of Scripture, my hope and my prayer is that after a year's journey, the book now appears to you far less mysterious and far more glorious than it did before. But how, how will we conclude a journey like this? Well, the answer to that question is not mysterious at all. Jesus concludes it for us. John, and ultimately Jesus who gives him these final words, concludes the book in the same manner in which it began, with a message to the church, a message to us, to First Baptist Nixa. And I believe it can be broken down into seven parting words. Fittingly, isn't it? Seven parting words divided into two sections. Jesus is going to speak to us four words about the book, and then He's going to give three words to his bride. So four words concerning the book and three words concerning the bride. Of the seven parting words to the church, the first four concern the book of Revelation itself. Several weeks ago, I had an email exchange with a guy who doesn't attend this church, but who evidently has been following along on the internet of uh, our study through Revelation, and he does not agree with the way that I've handled this book. And he had linked to an article on his Facebook page which referred to amillennialism, which is the view that I hold of Revelation, as, quote, heresy by allegory, end quote. I pushed back against him on the grounds that the word heresy does not refer to an eschatological view I happen to disagree with, but rather it refers to an error concerning an essential doctrine of the Christian faith that places the one who teaches this error, or who believes this error outside of the bounds of the historic Christian faith. In other words, one who teaches or believes a heresy is not to be regarded as a Christian. So I don't think that we ought to be throwing this word heresy about lightly. I further suggested to him that uh, it was especially unwise to call amillennialism a heresy in light of the fact that both the Apostle John and the Lord Jesus himself were amillennialists. And that he would one day be also one way or the other. Uh, he didn't agree with that line of argument. And he defended his use of the word heresy saying that in his estimation, heresy refers to, quote, something that can cause someone not to have eternal salvation if taken to its conclusion, end quote. And that like, un unlike most, he doesn't consider one's eschatological view to be a non-essential issue. Well, eventually we had to stop our discussion as it was increasingly proving fruitless. But as I began to study for this last message in Revelation, I became convinced that he's right about one thing. And it's not his take on the millennium of Revelation 20. He's correct in his assertion that the book of Revelation is far more important than most people give it credit for. So many Christians avoid this book like the plague, regarding its contents as hopelessly mysterious. The truth being only available to scholars with PhDs in New Testament history or pastors with stage-length prophecy charts to help them guide the way. Others relegate the contents of Revelation entirely to the future, rendering the vast majority of this book completely irrelevant to the church of the first 2,000 years of its history. 
But neither of those views, that it's entirely future or that it's hopelessly mysterious, hold up to scrutiny. Jesus intends for this book to be understood. And He intends for this book to be kept by the church of every age and in every place. In light of what this concluding passage has to say about the book of Revelation, it is clear that both John and Jesus Himself regard this book as vitally important for the church and having an immediate relevance and application both to the church of the first century, to the church of the 21st century, and to every church in every place in every age in between. Therefore, as we conclude our study of Revelation, I want to give you four parting words about how the church ought to receive this vitally important book and how we ought to handle its uniquely wondrous contents. The first parting word about the book of Revelation is this. This book must be believed. This point is established first in verse 6. He said to me, these words are trustworthy. That is, worthy of your trust. Worthy of faith. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent His angel to show His servants what must soon take place. And again in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The words of Revelation are trustworthy and true. They are worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith. They are to be believed. And John seems especially concerned in these verses to establish the trustworthiness of the revelation by establishing its divine origin. I, the Lord Jesus, am He who testifies to these things. I want you to turn back with me to the very first verses of Revelation. In verses 1-3 to of chapter 1, John establishes what we call the chain of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That passage establishes five links in this chain of revelation. Five links by which we come to have this book. Number one, God gave this revelation to His Son, Jesus Christ, whom verse 5 calls the faithful witness. Jesus can be trusted with this revelation. So God gives the revelation to His Son. Number two, The Son, Jesus Christ, made it known to His angel. He sent it by means of His angel. This was vividly depicted in Revelation chapter 10 in the angel that came down from heaven having the little scroll in His hand. And throughout the book of Revelation, it is the angels who consistently are John's guide through these revelatory visions. So God the Father gave it to the Son. The Son gave it to the angel. Number four, Three, the angel was sent by Christ to his servant John. John then, number four, bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw in his visions by writing it down there on the Isle of Patmos and sending it to the churches. First to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and then by extension to all the churches of Christ during this present age. Okay, So God the Father gives it to God the Son, who gives it to his angel, who gives it to John, who writes it down and sends it to us, to the church. And we, the church, form the fifth link in the chain of Revelation. 
we are responsible to read aloud, to hear, to keep, and to proclaim the words of this prophecy, which is what we have aimed to do over the past year. This book, in other words, claims for itself direct divine authorship and therefore direct divine authority. There is a chain of revelation stretching from the throne of God to the book in your hands. It is on this basis that the angel assures John in verse 6 that these words, these words, are trustworthy and true because they come from the faithful and true witness. These words must be believed. Parting word number two. These words must not only be believed, they're intended to be kept, studied, examined, taken to heart, obeyed. Jesus himself speaks to John in verse 7 and through John to us by the Spirit. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the book of Revelation is not some theological football to be passed about in online debates on Facebook. These are the words of our commander, our king, our savior, our judge, our God. These words are a matter of life and of death, of salvation and of judgment, of heaven and of hell. The book of Revelation was written for a purpose. It was written to unmask the beast, the false prophet, and the prostitute of Babylon. It was written to unveil, in other words, all of the wicked schemes of the dragon, the wicked schemes which he employs in the war which he is waging upon the saints of God. If we keep the words of this book then, we will recognize the beast for what he is. And we will not cower before his threats when he threatens us with imprisonment or death. If we keep the words of this book, we will see the false prophet for who he is and we won't be duped by his lies when he tries us to get in league with the beast. If we keep the words of this book, study them, meditate upon them, take them to heart, memorize them, obey them. If we keep the words of this book, we will see the prostitute for who she is and we will not succumb to her seductions. If we recognize the beast, the false prophet, and the prostitute as instruments of the dragon destined for destruction, we will be able to overcome their threats and see through their lies and resist their seductions. But if we ignore this book and we don't give heed to the words of this prophecy and we just pretend like the last book in our Bible doesn't exist, how are we ever going to be equipped to withstand the assault of the dragon which comes by means of the beast and the false prophet and the prostitute? When I first began this study and I had a conversation with someone who saw the direction I was headed and didn't like it, I said, brother, I'm not going into the book of Revelation. We're not embarking upon this year-long journey because I'm trying to make amillennial disciples so that we can all be in the same theological camp. I'm doing it because I'm concerned about the souls of my sheep. And I want them to resist the beast who's coming. And I want them to resist the false prophet who is already lying to them and whispering deceptions in their ear. And I want them to withstand the prostitute who calls to them through their television phone, television screens and their smartphones day by day and bids them to come and drink from her golden cup of abominations. I want our perseverance and that's why we've been in this book. 
How will we be equipped if we don't keep the words of this book? Third word concerning the book. The book must be believed. The book must be kept. Thirdly, it must be proclaimed. The book of Revelation is not intended merely to be read aloud, to be heard, to be kept in the church. This book, believe it or not, is an evangelistic book. It is intended not only to prepare the saints to endure the tribulation of this age, but it is intended to shine a light into a world that is shrouded by demonic darkness. As we'll see in a moment, this book calls out to sinners. I mean, the words of it itself calls out to sinners. It doesn't need me to come and say, here's how the book applies to you. It applies it itself. It says to you, come, drink, believe, live. This book calls out to sinners, inviting them to come and to drink from the waters of life and to live forever. This book was given to the church that it might be heralded to the world. Verse 10, And He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Don't let this be the last time that you venture into the 66th book of your Bible. Don't seal it up. For the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. The words of verse 10 are an allusion to the book of Daniel. Twice in the book of Daniel, Daniel was instructed to seal up the words of his prophecy because the contents of that prophecy referred to a distant time at the end of the age, a time that was far future from Daniel's perspective, Daniel 8.26. It had reference to the time of the end, which was not yet for Daniel, Daniel 12.4. Well, guess what? The end of the age has come upon us. With the first coming of Christ, the end of the age broke in upon us such that we now live in the biblical last days. And therefore, John is instructed, unlike Daniel, not to seal up the words of this prophecy. Why? Because the words of this book are relevant now to all people in every tribe and tongue and nation upon the earth. So First Baptist Nixa, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. This word must be proclaimed by you. The proclamation of these words of prophecy is carried out by prophets. I'm convinced that when the book of Revelation speaks of prophets, it does not mean that special office through which new revelation came to the New Testament church by the Spirit and was written down and preserved in the pages of the New Testament. Rather, I think it refers to the Spirit-empowered proclamation of every son and daughter of God, just as Peter used the word in Acts chapter 2 when he was quoting from the prophecy of Joel 2. This was the point of picturing the church in Revelation chapter 11 as two witnesses prophesying throughout this age in the power of the Holy Spirit before a hostile world that wants to kill it. And I think this is the point of the references to the prophets in Revelation 19.10 and its parallel in this passage. 22.8 I, John am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and with all those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John, do not worship me. I'm just a messenger of the book just like you and your brothers. We're messengers of the book. 
The book of Revelation presents the church in its prophetic role, prayerfully speaking the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit to our neighbors and to the nations. And part of that word which we powerfully speak are the words of this prophecy, the book of Revelation. But I'll give you a word of warning. Seems apt at this particular time. If we are prophets in this age, then we must expect to be treated as prophets. Stephen asked the Jewish leaders as they were preparing to stone him, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's a rhetorical question. The answer, all of them. Jesus cried out a few days before his crucifixion, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 11, the world rejoiced when the two prophets were slain by the beast. Why? Revelation 11.10. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell upon the earth. You're going to be a torment to the people that you're trying to save. The world hates prophets because the world hates truth. Prophets don't last long in this world. So remember that as we begin to extend our global reach to closed countries. When we call you to go on mission, we're not calling you to safety. We're called to the unreached peoples of the earth and all the easy places are reached. But we have a commission. We have a calling. We have a charge to keep. We must prophesy. Because it's only through prophesying, through speaking the Word of God, that He works His sovereign purpose out and calls His people out from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and draws them to the river of life. It's only when you say, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let the one who thirsts say, come. And let him come and and drink of the water of life without cost that ears are unstopped and hearts are awakened and minds are undarkened and eyes are opened and they they see and they hear and they, they long for the water of life and they come and they embrace Christ with all of their heart. That doesn't happen apart from your speaking. So speak. To those with ears to hear, these words of prophecy will be words of salvation. They will equip the saints to endure the tribulation and to remain faithful to the end. To those who are unbelieving and blind, the word of prophecy serves to increase their blindness and increase their hardness of heart and increase their culpability on the day of judgment. The word of God is a double-edged sword. This was the effect of Isaiah's preaching. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. This was the effect of Jesus' preaching. Matthew 13, 9 to 17. And this will be the effect of your preaching as well. And I think that's the point of verse 11. For some, the word of prophecy will seal them in their evil. It will seal them in their filthiness. You speak to them the word of this prophecy and they go, blah. But for others, it will seal them in their righteousness and holiness. In both cases, the word of prophecy is effective in fulfilling the sovereign decree and purposes of God. That's why Jesus ends all of his statements with, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The fourth and final word with regard to the book is that it must be unaltered. It must not be changed. God threatens terrible things to the one who changes the words of this book. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. What's interesting about these verses is that the Lord said exactly the same thing to Israel as they were preparing to enter the promised land. 
He said, you shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. I mean, evidently, John views the book of Revelation as a new word for a new Israel preparing to enter a new promised land. So, what does it look like to add to or to take away from the words of this book? Let me tell you what I don't think is in mind here, although this is not a good idea, don't do it. I don't think... I don't think he has in mind pulling out a pen and adding words, right? Adding sentences, putting things in that aren't there, like defacing the words of your Scripture. I think we get a clue as to what John is warning against when we simply look at what was going on in the seven churches of Asia Minor. Let me remind you what was happening. We went through these a year ago. The Nicolaitans of Ephesus, those in Pergamum who held to the teaching of Balaam, the prophetess Jezebel in Thyatira, the dead church members in Sardis, the lukewarm of Laodicea, they all, they all held this in common. They encouraged compromise with the surrounding pagan culture when this book calls for clear convictional separation from the surrounding culture. And that compromise inevitably resulted in idolatry and immorality and eventually apostasy. See, the entire book of Revelation is a clarion call to convictional living. It is calling the saints to a radical and passionate devotion to Christ no matter the cost. This word of prophecy draws a clear and unmistakable line in the sand. You either... This moment, you either follow the Lamb or you follow the beast. You either are a citizen of Babylon or you belong to Zion. Therefore, to add to or take away from the words of this prophecy is to assert that that line which Revelation makes crystal clear is actually kind of blurry, kind of hazy. People can look like Babylonians and really be citizens of Zion. People can look very beast-like and really be followers of the Lamb. That's what's warned against. To add to or to take away from the words of the prophecy of this book is to assert, assert that convictions are unnecessary and that compromise is best. The church should just go along to get along. It erases the line in the sand and blurs the clear distinction between the followers of the Lamb and the followers of the beast. In other words, it removes the teeth from this book. Strips it of all of the astonishing and horrifying warnings of judgment that are intended to protect the saints from the damnable dangers of sin. You are supposed to read the words of this book and get a little scared. And if you read the words of this book and you don't get a little scared, you, you might want to heed the warning of verses 18 and 19. To add to or subtract from the words of this prophecy is to lead others away from the straight path and the narrow gate that leads to life and onto the broad path that leads to destruction. And therefore, just as Jesus said it would, be better to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than to cause one of his little ones to sin. So here, John warns that to blur the clear call to faithful perseverance sounded by this book and thus to lead others down the path of destruction is to be placed under the eternal curse of God's wrath. Not only must we proclaim the words of this book, but we are charged to proclaim all all the words of this book. Even the parts that unbelievers and fake believers don't like to hear. Those are four words about the book to us, the church. I want to conclude with three final words to the bride. As we close out our study, I want you to listen closely and receive these words as the words of the risen and exalted Christ to you, His blood-bought church. For he addresses you directly. First, Jesus is coming soon. Three times in this passage, Jesus makes this plain. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Do you think Jesus intends to make a point? He is coming soon. How can he be coming soon if he spoke these words nearly 2,000 years ago and two millennia have elapsed and he hasn't come? Two points to bear in mind if you've ever asked that question. I have. Number one, the word translated soon. It's the Greek word taku. It is probably better translated quickly or with haste. And it refers to suddenness rather than to the length of time until his return. A better translation may be, I am coming suddenly. In other words, they're going to be surprised. Secondly, Christ's return is imminent in the sense that it is the next and final major event in redemptive history. We're not waiting for any other major redemptive historical event to transpire before Jesus comes and makes all things new. It's next. The next thing on the biblical horizon is the return of Jesus. But the point of Jesus' threefold declaration here is that it is both a threat and a promise. And I, wonder how, I wonder how it sounded to you. How it falls upon your ears and how it falls upon your heart, whether it falls as a threat of imminent judgment, I'm coming soon. Or as a promise of imminent salvation, I'm coming soon. Depends entirely on whether you are in a state of compromise. A state of compromise with the world or whether you are persevering faithfully but not perfectly in your following of Christ. So I want to... I want to speak these words over you, and I want you to be reflective and consider the way that they sound to you. So just listen. These are the words of the living Christ to you. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Behold, I am coming soon, and I am bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Do those words fall upon your ears and strike your heart as a threat or as a promise? If you hear those words as a threat then you need to repent while there is still time. And if you hold or hear those words as a promise, then you need to rejoice and you need to hold fast. Hebrews 10.37, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hold fast. He's coming soon. Second word of Jesus to the bride, his church, is that you must wash your robes. Verse 14 Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We've seen a people who have washed their robes before. It was back in Revelation chapter 7. John saw a great multitude standing around the throne, a multitude that he says no man could count from every tribe, tongue, people, and language, standing before the throne, clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. They're gathered in the exultant worship of God and of the Lamb. And one of the 24 elders comes up to John and identifies this innumerable multitude as these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. 
He goes on to describe the blessings that belong to those who have washed their robes. Everlasting life and joy, which I would equate in Revelation 22 to the tree of life. In the presence of God and of the Lamb, which I would equate in Revelation 22 to they may enter the city by its gates. In other words, the washing of the robes in Revelation 7 is the same as the washing of the robes in Revelation 22, and that's important because Revelation 7 tells us how to wash our robes. They wash their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is the wrath-absorbing, soul-cleansing, righteousness-imputing death of Jesus Christ on the cross received by faith. It is speaking of the gloriously free and unmerited gift of justification by free grace received by faith alone because of the blood and the righteousness of Christ. It is justification in Christ alone. No work of ours, no merit of our own which secures our right and access to the tree of life and entrance into the eternal city of God. It is free and it is the gospel. But... Those who have washed their robes, I want you to notice that they don't remain unchanged. God justifies no one whom He does not also sanctify. Because God justifies no one whom He has not first regenerated, caused to be born again, awakened to a new creation with new affections and new desires and walking in a new way of life. That is why there is a real and visible difference between those inside the city and those outside the city. The difference is not merely that those inside have washed their robes. The difference is that they are actually righteous. That's not why they got in, but it's the evidence that they have been justified. Those outside the city, their garments are still filthy and they are still Filthy. Those inside the city are righteous. Their lives bearing the fruit of the Spirit. While those outside the city are, according to this verse, verse 15, dogs. Unclean, defiled, filthy scavengers, disease. You don't want God to say that when He looks at you. Sorcerers, people who dabble in spirits, Hmm. the sexually immoral, a lot at stake in sexual immorality, the murderers, a lot at stake in life, idolaters, those who worship false gods, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood, they're not in the gates. Let that be the last tooth in this book. And I pray that it will cut some of you. So the second word of Jesus to his bride, to us, is that you must wash your robes in the blood which was shed for your justification. And your justification must be proven by a real and visible change called sanctification. So I'm going to ask you the question, are you justified before God by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb? Are your robes white? And secondly, are you being sanctified by faith in the power of the Spirit such that He is building or bringing forth out of your life fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-faithfulness, self-control? Are those fruit growing in you so that you can say with a certain degree of confidence, yes, I've been born again and the Holy Spirit is working in me. My robes are white by grace through faith and my heart is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Is your life different from the rest of the world who will be excluded from the everlasting city? 
or do you look just like them? If you look just like, like them, you're going to be with them. Which brings me to the final word of Jesus to everyone here today. You, you, you can come and drink freely. If you are unsure of the answer to those last two questions, are you justified by grace through faith in the blood of the Lamb? Are your robes washed white in the blood? And is your life evidencing a change by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you with confidence can say, I've been born again? If you're unsure of the answer to those questions, or if you're sure that the answer is no, then this word of Christ, this word of the Spirit, and this word of His justified, sanctified, glorious bride to you is, verse 17, the Spirit and the bride say to you, come. Those who have heard say to you, come. And if you thirst, you may come and let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. Beloved, free grace and forgiveness is offered to you this morning by the risen Christ, by His Spirit, and through His bride. Forgiveness, cleansing, everlasting life, ever-increasing joy in the presence of God and of His Christ, and it is all free. Free. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you are doing, what your past is, what your present is, washed white. No more shame, no more sin, no more separation, no more exclusion, no more wrath, no more curse, Free grace, life, salvation, forgiveness. It is offered to you today. God spoke long ago to His people. A people not unlike some of you here. A, a people who were God's people in name only. And He said this through the prophet Jeremiah. Be appalled, O heavens at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You're dying of thirst. Yet you have forsaken the God who is the fountain of living waters. You were made for infinite joy in God. Instead, you keep trying to forge for yourself broken cisterns and they don't hold any water. Seeking the satisfaction in the depth of your soul, which that void which was created so that you might yearn for God and that He might fill it to your everlasting delight. You try to fill it with other things that can't fill it. Money, possessions, relationships, sex, the praise of man, and it never works. And yet, in astounding and astonishing grace this morning, the God whom you have forsaken issues you this invitation. Christ died to open up the fountain in the desert so that everyone, including you, who are thirsty, who are sapped with this unquenchable desire may come and freely drink of His grace for sinners in Christ. This is an offer of free grace. The gate to the fountain will not be open forever. This invitation has an expiration date. But not today. Today is the day of grace. Today, now, is the day of salvation. So heed the words of this book and come. 
All who are thirsty, come. All who are weary, come. All who are filthy and ashamed, come. All who are despised and rejected and lonely and filled with self-loathing and self-hatred and self-doubt, you come. You come and you drink from the fountain and from the well of grace. You come and be clean and be satisfied forever in the mercy of God for you in Christ. And then and only then will the final words of Jesus fall on your ears with joy and with hope. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. And then and only then will you be able to cry out with the Apostle John and with all the redeemed saints of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Yes, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Our God and our Father, I pray that the thirsty would come, that they would drink, That they would not remain in shame and sin and defilement, but rather that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would open their eyes and awaken their hearts to see and to long for the fountain that is the grace of Christ available to sinners through faith. Let me tell you exactly what it means to drink. It means to bow your heart before the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to cry out to Him for forgiveness and cleansing for your soul. It means to call out to Him for the new life which you long to have so that He changes your affections and changes your desires and gives you a new heart of flesh where once there was a heart of stone. It means you cry out for forgiveness and grace and you say, Jesus, give me a drink. I'm thirsty. I'm dying here. You call out to Him. And he'll give you to drink. God, give drinks all over this place this morning. Give them. In Jesus' name, amen.